1: and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past.
0: Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed
1: everyone, and welcome to the new Books in Medicine podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Kaur. Today we will be talking with Dr. Henry J. Prisbillo. He is an associate professor of anesthesiology at Northwestern University School of Medicine and has performed anesthesia over 30,000 times throughout his career. He is here today to talk about his book, Counting Backwards, A Doctor's Notes in Anesthesia. This is a book I would highly recommend to anyone with even the slightest bit of curiosity wow. about anesthesiology. Dr. Henry J. Prisbillo, welcome
2: to the show. Thank you. I appreciate your uh, offer.
1: Dr. J., I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, including how you ended up in anesthesiology.
2: Oh, wonderful. Uh, you know, I it, when I was in high school, I decided uh, medicine was, <laughs> was a reality for me. Uh, and that's quite a, a statement coming from a truly blue-collar, nobody in uh, white-collar, nobody in medicine – Uh, And so uh, I decided to pursue medicine, and at the same time, I got married, and that led to a bit of a conundrum in that I was going to uh, go surgery, uh, but shortly after entering surgery, for a couple of reasons, of which my family was uh, one of them, I already had two children, uh, I moved into anesthesia, and it seemed to fit all the needs for both myself and the family, and so I became an anesthesiologist.
1: All right. Now, you mentioned a little bit of a, a Bruce Springsteen influence with your move into anesthesiology. Can you share that?
2: When I was in uh, medical school, I uh, took a an elective in anesthesia. They actually paid some money. Uh, at that time, they were uh, trying to recruit people into it. And I, I'm not sure why, because it seemed like it was pre-filled. Uh, but uh, I still, I took the uh, elective in med school and uh, and entered anesthesia and promptly, I mean, with the intention of spending that money uh, <laughs> on speakers, uh, took took that check, ran out to the uh, stereo store, uh, got a couple of nice, big, giant kickball speakers, and uh, in addition bought uh, Bruce Springsteen Springsteen's Born to Run. And boy, that uh, apartment uh, rumbled while I was playing with it. uh, And insidiously, anesthesia kind of crept into my uh, mind and my career.
1: So I got to ask you, uh, I hate to ask you such a tough question this early on in the show, but uh, what was it like to crank up the volume on those speakers and rock out to the new Bruce Springsteen album?
2: The, the the only thing I had to worry about was how disturbing to the rest of the people in the apartment building I was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah, but, but you know, it, it really didn't make a heck of a lot of consideration to me. And I just let it fly.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. Now the name of the book counting backwards has a pretty clever meaning behind it. Can you explain that to our listeners?
2: Well, counting, counting backwards is something that you do with adults. Uh, in children, I uh, talk about something uh, a little bit different in the smells that they're uh, having, and then it smells like piggies to zoo. But for adults, you just say uh, conventionally counting backwards. It's, it tends to go back to the 40s. Was the first place that I actually saw it mentioned. And it was at a time when uh, the medications that were used to induce anesthesia was an IV barbiturate, and you, and you went off to sleep pretty quickly. Uh, so, so it was my thought, and it, there's there is any articles or anything out there to speak of that talked about uh, counting backwards during the 40s and 50s and that's how, how it came to be. Uh, subsequently, after I wrote the book, I actually found a, uh, uh, it, uh, one of the readers sent me a reference uh, to counting backwards actually going back to the early 1900s, uh, but it was in a little bit different context, and I'm not sure that it actually stayed at that particular point in time. So it's probably mentioned first in the 1900s, early 1900s, but it seems to have come in when uh, barbiturates came for inducing anesthesia.
1: Out of curiosity, under your care, what's the furthest back anyone has been able to count?
2: Oh, you know, I, I mess with them. So, so I watch these people come in, and uh, and you know I could see that they're they're already working at counting backwards and this and that, and and as soon as I say okay, we're you know going to start counting backwards from a hundred, they start counting. Wait, 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 wait. We're going to do it by seventies, <laughs> by, by sevens. Excuse me, by sevens. And, and they they never make it into the 80s so that's just fine with me
1: (laughs) that's fascinating Uh, it's funny the last time I had surgery a few years ago I actually uh, remember trying to see how long I could stay awake after I was given the anesthesia drugs and Mm -hmm. uh, the last thing I remember was trying to stay awake as long as I could and that my arm was starting to get a little cold from the IV fluids. so clearly I didn't do that good of a job
2: you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, rule number one of anesthesia, I always win <laughs> so, and, and that, and that, uh, that is yet to be disproven. So, so I, you know, and you know, I, I can adjust it. I can put the medication in the IV before I even have people start counting. There's all kinds of things I can do. But the fact is, as soon as I say by sevens, they're so flummoxed, uh, <laughs> the patients never have an idea what to do. Children on the other hand, it's a little more interesting because they go to sleep by mask, uh. Uh, you know, we, we frequently don't have IVs. They're more afraid of needles than they are of the mask. And so, so they, they breathe through the mask and go off to sleep by the mask. And that's going to be a little bit longer. And uh, and that's where I tend to, you know, tell the piggy stories because the gas smells different. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. piggies are, are one thing in the zoo is one thing that, that most of the kids understand. So, so they get the piggies and they get a few questions into piggies. You know, how many piggies do you smell? How big are they? What are their colors? and that's about it for them before Mm -hmm. they drift off to sleep.
1: Okay. In the book, you detail uh, a bit about the history of anesthesia. Can you please tell us about its discovery, uh, some of the milestones along the way, and uh, some of the mysteries that still surround it to this day?
2: Wonderful. You know, the the, uh, breathing gases was uh, a late 1700s type thing. Uh, When scientists were starting to able to differentiate the different gases and one of the first ones that they differentiated uh, in the anesthesia realm was nitrous oxide and and so uh, in the late 1700s and in the early uh, 1800s uh, Laughing gas nitrous oxide was uh, was introduced and it was introduced as a party drug uh, And (laughs) laughing gas. I mean, that's that's the reason why Uh, and people then decided that they could take it a little bit further especially dentistry. Dentistry was a big procedure back then when they were pulling uh, uh, rotten teeth and trying to do so comfortably. And uh, and so they were trying to do it with laughing gas, and it wasn't being so successful. But within that same period of time, the ethers, the gases of from the ethers were introduced and were also found to, to uh, have a, a uh, party use. And in the south, in the southern U.S., They were doing it to the slaves so that there would be parties with all the the whatever, uh, and they would bring a slave in and they would make them uh, breathe the uh, ether while having them dance and watching them stumble around. And for some reason, that seemed to be enjoyment. Uh, And then uh, it was determined that, hey, you know, if if, uh, laughing gas isn't quite strong enough, but uh, ether, you know, look at the bumps these people are getting uh, and the cuts they're getting and not remembering them, maybe this is a better gas And so uh, Ether was introduced first by a uh, a, a surgeon physician in the South, Crawford Long, uh, and then – but there were all kinds of of, uh, superstitions and possible uh, religious things that were going on and that that uh, he built for it, and that's why we know Crawford Long – actually used ether uh, in the early 1840s, but it wasn't until the ether dome in the later uh, 40s uh, when it was actually proposed as an anesthetic agent, although anesthesia was a term coined after the introduction of it.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay. Now, can you please describe in your book what you call your anesthesia command center and walk us through everything that happens from when a patient enters your care to when a patient leaves your care?
2: Okay, that's a, that's a great, uh, very broad question. Uh, the, the command center is uh, in, a, a, most people think about it, the operating room. Uh, I tend to try and trying to bring it off as a procedure room since uh, procedures, not operations, are, are being performed more commonly today. Procedures being uh, uh, endoscopies and cardiac uh, procedures and different uh, intravascular procedures. Uh, so, so it's being produced being done throughout uh, operating uh, rooms, uh, hospitals, uh, outpatient surgery centers, etc. So we go into a procedure room, and in that procedure room is the area where the uh, anesthesiologist and all the equipment is set up, and so that's my command center. So uh, what I try to describe is that if you're thinking of the room as a watch, the floor being the watch face around it if you 're looking straight forward you 're looking directly at the patient and the patient's head, which is right in front of me uh, and and if you start using that. As uh, sort of the uh, noontime, and you start moving around to the right, going clockwise, you're now coming on to the various uh, different pieces of equipment that I'm using, and and just jump in, please, if if uh, you, you want to stop it or you want any more recognition, but you come to the, the gases that are coming out of the machine through the tubes to the patient, then you come to the anesthetic machine, which is a behemoth. I mean, this thing is hundreds of pounds with all the weight in it, has all the gases it also has the monitors uh, on top of it. Uh, so so that that is truly the the main command center is the anesthesia machine. Uh, and so I can dial in the amount of gases that are being used, both the oxygen and, and breathing gases in addition to the anesthetic gases. And then I can measure all of that in addition to all the vital signs I want to measure, which include heart rate, blood pressure, temperature, etc. As you continue to turn clockwise and around, now you're reaching towards the back and you're at the uh, six o'clock position. And, the, and that's a uh, anesthesia cabinet that contains all the equipment that isn't being used immediately. All the things that are being used immediately are placed on top of the anesthesia machine, all the things that you think you might need are are uh, in that anesthesia cart or on top of the anesthesia cart. You keep turning around, and now you're at the uh, one, two, three o'clock positions, and that's where you're going to have the variety of IVs, uh, IV poles, and all the things that are going to be given through through the intravenous region reasons. Uh, and you're going to have drugs that you're going to be pushing through those draw lines, mm-hmm. etc. And now you continue to come around and you're back at six o'clock and you're back facing your patient. So I try to, to stay with myself, uh, uh, my face to the patient and watching the patient. And then I can gauge to the right and see the, uh, the anesthesia machine and all the monitors. And mm-hmm. to the left is the IVs.
1: Would you mind telling me a little bit about what you call in your book your "oh shit"
2: shelf? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I, I placed that so cautiously, didn't I? Uh, <laughs> there's, there, there, there's, there's one drug that is the the uh, kick butt drug of all that that I have, and that's epinephrine uh epinephrine will it, it, it's amazing the, the amount of things that it does for the body it increases the heart rate increases the blood pressure uh it is really the the get out of trouble drug that drug is always put on the ocean shelf which which is uh <laughs> above the anesthesia section. Uh, and it's right at where the monitor starts. So, so it's it's uh, about shoulder height uh, to to the uh, three o'clock position on that clock. Uh, and it's called the oh shit shelf because if anybody in the room says oh shit, my <laughs> hand is going through that shelf. So, so, so that's what it really comes down to. And I caution everybody not to say oh shit unless they really mean it. <laughs> but, but the first thing I'm grabbing for is uh, what's the emergency drug that's going to get the best response for the patient to get the vital signs stable, et cetera, and that's going to be epinephrine.
1: Do the other people in the room typically know about the existence of that shelf?
2: Uh, I I make sure everybody in the room knows about that shelf, and I hope that uh, they all understand I never want to reach for that shelf, and I also try to tell them, this is what's going to make me reach for that okay. shelf. And, you know, and some people are are uh, they're cautious and they'll never say that word. Uh, others are not so cautious and they'll say that word. And They watch my hand reach up for that. And they say, no, no, no. <laughs> or, yeah, it's time. It's time. Right. right. So, uh, so they give me a clue. All
1: right. Let's go back to that uh, a little bit about the summary between or about what, well, you know, what happens when a patient kind of enters your care uh, through the process of when they end up leaving your
0: care.
2: Okay. You know, we, we, we head back to before we hit the operating room or the procedure room at all. And, and I'm first meeting these patients, usually in the pre-anesthesia area. Uh, I would love to meet them before then, but uh, that uh, that's the way our system works. So uh, before they come back to the uh, procedure room, I go and meet them and I introduce myself and I do a history and physical and get all these things done. and It's about three minutes. Uh, And when you think about it, that three minutes is uh, probably the most important three minutes of life uh, when it comes right down to it. And in that three minutes, I have to uh, both learn everything I can about the patient uh, from history, from, from physical exam, but also try to introduce a, a relationship, develop a relationship so that the, the the patient can trust me and the family and whoever else is around develops a, a certain level of trust uh, because I, I believe that's very, very important uh, and it relieves the anxiety of the people who are unfortunately not getting any medications mm-hmm. and that's the family who are waiting in the waiting room while the patient is fast asleep and I'm doing everything I can to worry about the patient myself, <clears throat> so so that's about three minutes, and uh, and after about three minutes, checking the chart, making sure all the notes are entered, we head back to the uh, procedure room. And in the procedural, uh, the, the uh, things that are going to happen is, is, after the patient's identified, making sure everything's all right, I'm putting on my monitors, and and monitors are those things which I'm going to measure as they're drifting asleep and throughout the entire anesthetic and understand anesthesia really isn't sleep, but we can talk about that a little bit uh, later. It's a far different uh, state. Uh, but I'm putting on uh, monitors to measure the heart rate, the uh, heart's electrical activity, the blood pressure uh, watching the breathing temperature uh, and those are all going to come up on the screen to my right uh, and there's also some audible uh, uh, aspects to them so I can hear the heart rate and I can hear the tone of how much oxygen is is being delivered and and received by the body Uh, but my eyes are pretty much straightforward Trying to guess what those numbers are by looking at the patient, and then every once in a while confirming what the numbers are on the screen. So once once the patient is in the uh, uh, procedure room and all the monitors are placed and everything's uh, identified, then we're ready to start the uh, anesthetic procedure. And uh, so. For the older patient who's going to have an IV, it's going to be very, very quick, and that's what counting backwards comes in, Mm -hmm. because it's going to be the medications introduced through the IV, and and those are very, very quick. And that's how I can be sure that patients are never getting out of the 90s, especially if they're counting backwards by seven. And then the children are breathing the gas, Mm -hmm. and then the gas is with the piggy stories, and off to sleep they go. Uh, Once they're anesthetized, now, uh, I have a couple of uh, functions that I'm uh, responsible for, and first of all, it's for all the vital signs of the patient, making sure the patient is perfectly stable, that the patient is perfectly uh, comfortable, and I'm watching everything that's happening in that room, especially the patient and, and whoever's performing the procedure and what they're doing. Uh, so making sure that all goes smoothly uh, and keeping vital signs stable, et cetera. Uh, and then we reach the end of the procedure, and then I'm turning off my gases, reversing all my medications, and waking the patient up, again, all while constantly monitoring and making sure that the patient is uh, stable. Now, let me tell you, that's a little bit easier said than done uh, because during a procedure, there are times when when there's very little being done to the patient and you have to be careful that you're not giving too much medication and, and uh, impacting the vital signs too, uh, too much. Uh, and on the other hand, there's times when there's a lot of stimulation going on and so you wanna make sure that the patient's adequately comfortable during that period. So, so it, it's not always a constant level of anesthesia that you're giving, it's a constant level necessary to perform the procedure at the safest possible state And the most comfortable state for the patient, so so that's what's going on during that uh, period of time.
1: Okay, Uh, so the term anesthesia means without feeling, but that does not encompass all of the goals of your care. Can you explain what you call in your book the five A's?
2: Okay. Anesthesia was a a term coined uh, shortly after the use of gas to provide a uh, senseless patient, if you will. Uh, And so anesthesia uh, meant without feeling, and it was exact for that particular point in time uh, and the the, the vital signs and the various uh, factors that impacted them wasn't well known. Subsequent to that, uh, we started uh, dissecting out what we needed to know. And so uh, we came up with the five A's. Now. Searching for the five A's uh, in history is is, uh, similar to searching for uh, counting backwards and and all the other parts of of, uh, anesthesia, and it's just not well documented. Uh, But I presented the five A's. um, Trying to replace the term anesthesia with different A's uh, that that impacted, and and uh, you know they include everything from anxiety, which is primarily an issue before the case, uh, to amnesia, uh, not not remembering anything, analgesia, pain, uh, a reflexia. Uh, which is, uh, has to do with vital signs and keeping everything stable, akinesia, meaning not moving. And, and they all use different uh, medications uh, if given separately. The, mm-hmm. the gas is a beautiful thing. That gas covers everything. It covers all of those. It reduces every, you know, the anxiety. It controls the heart rate, blood pressure. Uh, you, you can prevent movement if you're deep enough. It does everything beautifully. But you know, there's there's times when the gas isn't possible or, or it, it isn't wise to use. And so we flip back to those five A's and then give the medications for each of those that reaches the point of safety and comfort for the patients.
1: Okay. Okay. Perfect.
2: I, I hope that answers it appropriately for you.
1: No, absolutely, absolutely. Uh,
2: as an anesthesiologist, if, if, if it doesn't just ask, yeah. Please. No, it's great.
1: Uh, as an anesthesiologist, your knowledge must span all other specialties. Uh, will you go into a bit of detail about how what you would do would be different for one procedure versus another? Hey, let's
2: let's, uh, let's drop back a little bit first, and uh, and I, I will pose to, to you and to your listeners uh, that anesthesia is possibly the one specialty in all of medicine that allows the least to be forgotten from medical school. Uh, the the uh, one thing that... Uh, we don't delve into deeply is the actual pathology meaning looking at the cells to figure out what's what's wrong and, and what's going to happen, uh, but in terms of that, you know every step from from uh, all the all your basic sciences uh pathology anatomy physiology is involved with anesthesia as as are all the other uh, things uh, uh, basic sciences associated with it from anatomy, uh, physiology, pharmacology, uh, pediatrics, uh, internal medicine, surgery. I have, you take, virtually every part of medical school is involved in an in anesthesiologist's care and the need to know, which is which is quite important. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I, I think that's a very, very significant thing about anesthesia. Uh, in terms of the specifics about what's happening, uh let's let's uh talk about a twenty uh, year old who uh, went down a uh, ski mountain and hit a a rock and has torn a uh knee ligament. Mm-hmm. Uh and Uh, that's one of the easier ones because they're usually fairly healthy outside of it so you don't have to worry as much about internal medicine about that Uh, but you want to know about you know you have a knee injury now what do you need to anesthetize what are those five A's is actually uh, necessary Mm -hmm. Uh, and so uh, what what I'm most concerned about, most is a little bit of an overstatement, but I am very concerned about the patient's comfort after the procedure. Mm-hmm. Anesthesia in itself is usually during the procedure itself, in, and you put the gas on, the patient goes under anesthesia, you do your procedure, you turn the gas off, and the patient's now out from anesthesia, but there's a whole lot of, of discomfort uh, that needs to be considered, and via stable vital signs. Uh, and so, so the discomfort we can we can talk about in terms of uh, regional anesthesia, uh, blocking nerves, uh, blocking the spine, uh, and uh, not needing as deep of an anesthetic gas anesthetic. Uh, the patient doesn't have to be uh, so deep that that uh, their vital signs are are. Uh, concerned. Uh, And sometimes even memory isn't a big issue. The uh, patient doesn't want memory loss. They want to be awake during the procedure. Uh, And so so you're given pain relief, you're given stability to vital sites, you're making sure they're not moving while they're still understanding. So you break those five A's down into what you need. And on on this 20-year-old for a knee procedure, it can become very, very interesting, intriguing on what you do and how you reach it. On the other hand, you have a uh, 65-, 70-year-old with a heart attack coming in and uh, needing some some cardiac procedure. And you're eliminating the, the ability to be awake and you're just having them go off to sleep uh and so so that they're amnestic, they're not remembering anything they're they're not anxious, but now you have to worry about how deep you're getting them uh in terms of the heart working because the heart's malfunctioning and and so it, it it's uh each patient presents uh, a different quandary and you're going to, need to adjust those five a's to the specific case and hopefully continue the pain relief as necessary after the procedure
1: okay. Uh, you say that in your anesthesiologist's dreams, you dream of railroad tracks. Uh, can you explain yeah, what yeah. that means?
2: Yeah. We're recording vital signs the entire time. And if you think about railroad tracks that are straight and uh, narrow and going right down from— from where you are off to the horizon. If you think of that being an anesthetic record, it's a piece of paper that's recording all these vital signs. Instead of them jumping up and down and curving all over the place, you want them nice and parallel and straight Mm -hmm. across that that page. And so, so those are kind of like railroad tracks running across your page, but you don't want the curves. You want them nice and straight so that the heart rate, the blood pressures, the breathing, the oxygenation, everything stays nice and stable across So it looks like a a railroad track going straight across the anesthesia record. It's a nice, stable patient.
1: What was your most difficult case?
2: Oh, God. There's, you know... Uh, there's so many of them uh, and every time uh, a person asks me this I'm probably thinking of a different case uh, one, one of the cases I, that I think about is actually a case that was done in uh, interventional radiology uh, and it was a patient who uh, uh, was thought to have a, uh, a hepatic liver problem and uh, was, well, was possibly bleeding because uh, blood was backing up in the liver and not flowing well through it and that all the problems associated with a liver that's not functioning which includes the uh, uh, clotting mechanisms of the blood and not functioning right and uh, as we're doing the case uh, the blood was just flying out of the patient's mouth and it was coming from uh, uh, the stomach and we realized that his major uh, problem was a bleed uh, that was on the surface of the stomach, and uh, so so it was it was a god awful case oh, when you think about it. And it fortunately turned out well, uh, but it was a lot. And not only was I uh, charged with trying to keep the patient stable, uh, I had the problem with the blood coming out of the mouth and uh, what I was going to do to try and stop that. Or at least got it out of my way so I could breathe adequately for the patient uh, and not have this mess going on. And uh, it took multiple hands. Uh, I had substantial help uh, pushing the blood, pushing the drugs, uh, making sure the IVs were all fine in addition to emptying out the stomach. And meanwhile, trying to keep him as stable as I could. And by the grace of God, when I, uh, in that he did quite well and survived and uh, is still alive today.
1: That's great. Your your specialty is pediatric anesthesiology. You share a lot of stories in the book where your warmth and compassion can really be felt, uh, even in the face of some of the difficulties that come along with that pediatric specialty. You mentioned that pre-procedure fear and anxiety is something that is very common from both the child patients and their parents. Can you share a story or two about how you manage that?
2: Oh. Boy, I I could share hours and hours (laughs) about about all the different uh, people that I've uh, cared for, all the patients, all the parents I've cared for. one of the one of my uh, one of the stories. This is a very interesting thing, in that it, when I when I have these interviews, when people have talked to me about the book, when they've mentioned it, they interestingly never mention the last chapter of of the book, uh, the chapter about uh, uh, this this boy that I was taking care of and I had taken care of numerous times, and and uh, you know for the grace of, of God or whatever, uh, these patients, the parents just kept calling me kept asking me it was actually the, the father that always called me and, and you know and say oh nick's, nick's coming back nick's coming back and then can you uh, can you help us out can you help us out uh and uh, nick had uh, a variety of issues uh uh but uh Trying, trying to make the parents as comfortable as possible was, was a, uh, a major undertaking. You know, within minutes of, of leaving the parents, I have Nick asleep, uh, mm-hmm. and so so he's nice and comfortable, and I can take care of him, and this and that. The, the issue came into one, one of the thought, ways that I thought I could alleviate the parents' anxiety was with the St. Christopher's Medal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I saw Nick, uh, and this was numerous times, numerous procedures into uh, uh, his care, but this was a big procedure. It was a cardiac procedure. He was going, having a redo cardiac procedure, and I saw Nick in the pre-op area with his parents, and, and uh, his medal flashed. And it was probably the way I walked in, and the reflection out of the windows, whatever. But I saw that the, the Saint Christopher's metal flash. And, and so I, you know, I just assumed maybe that's a, a wrong term, because you know what assume means—making an ass of you and me. <laughs> uh, and and so so I assumed that that metal was of of importance, and I. I it virtually insisted, Hey, you know, that, that metal's come back with Nick and this and that, hoping to give the parents something to relax about and then promptly lost the medal. And oh God, I went home. I was just absolutely distraught, you know, telling my wife I lost God and this and that, and and I couldn't believe it. And I tore through bags in in the uh, uh, sterile, non sterile area, and I was going through everything, and I wasn't able to find these things. And and I felt like you know a a nitwit uh, for having lost that medal, and it was so important, and this and that. And they're calling me from from the unit, and I think, oh, geez, and so, you know, I went, and after having an uber successful case, surgeon did a wonderful job, uh, and Nick was doing just fine, and they say, can you tell me where the medal is, and I go, oh, geez, and so so I had to confess that I lost the medal, and still, they requested me the time after. And, and I was, uh, between baffled, you know, you still trust me and grateful you still trust That's me. Right. <laughs> uh, and fortunately they called me the day before, uh, and saying, you know, Nick's coming in, can you take care of him? And it allowed me to find a medal. And when, uh, when Nick returned to the recovery area, uh, and I got that similar phone call. Uh, Dr. J, can you please come to the uh, unit and see Nick? And this time they're holding the metal and they say, Where did this come from? And my only response was, God works in mysterious ways. So uh, it, I'll, I'll go whatever distance it, it can take me Mm -hmm. to make sure that the people in the waiting area, the people that are standing behind, you know, hopefully waiting for everything to work out are as comfortable as they could possibly be Uh, But the prime person is, of course, the patient.
1: Right. Right. Now, again, in talking about those, uh, the the difficulties around pediatric anesthesiology, do you mind sharing uh, the Captain Crunch story?
2: I have this little boy, three, four years old, coming down for a uh, abdominal procedure. He had he had problems with his intestines, and the surgeon wanted to take a look at him, and uh, but needed anesthesia to keep him comfortable. And I walk into him in the pre-op holding area, and he's alone. Whoever brought him dropped him off and ran. There was no nurse parents weren't around he was alone and he's three four years old and he's sitting on this bed in this rather dark room and i walk in before i can introduce myself and you know describe what's going to happen he says i had captain crunch and then shuts up (laughs) and it's the only thing he says to me and then he looks at me and i can see his white teeth and i'm thinking oh no and so I start looking high and low. And the reason being, if you have something in the stomach, if you eat not long before anesthesia, acid's produced, and now the anesthesia is going to relax the muscles in the body. And in terms of, of the uh, stomach, it's going to relax the, the muscle that, that uh, as it enters the stomach from the esophagus, from the tube going from the mouth to the stomach, it's going it to, both ends, it's going to relax and it's also going to prevent the vocal cords from closing if there's any stimulation for anything being in the mouth. Uh, and uh, you can usually feel that with something going down the wrong pipe and your vocal cords close and you can't speak and this and that. Uh, and so, so that's what I'm worried about. And he just says, I have Captain Crunch and clams up. Oh, my and so goodness. now I'm searching for, for all over the place. How am I going to find out if he had anything to eat or not? And there's no parent. There's no nurse. There's no uh, transporter. So I call up to the unit, and, and I'm speaking to the nurse and asking about, uh, uh, did, did he have Captain Crunch or not? And she said, absolutely not, doctor. Absolutely not. And so I go back to him, and they say, no, nope. they said you didn't have any. We're good to go in this manner. And then once again, it blurts out, I have Captain Crunch. <laughs> and not enough. Other word, and I thought, geez, why is this happening to me? Now, I could have been, you know, the the easy thing would have been just to say, go back up to your room, let's reschedule this. Uh, But I'm thinking, you know, he's got a problem, and you know, nobody's around him, and how can he be doing this? And and so I, I keep searching, and the nurse is getting more and more angry with him, and finally. After speaking to her the third time, I think it was, she says he absolutely did not have Captain Crunch. Uh, we go back to the operating room and induce the anesthesia, and there comes the Captain Crunch out of his mouth. And so I quickly turn him over and I'm suctioning out. And uh, you know I'm thinking, oh Lord, if this Captain Crunch gets down the, the the trachea, it can cause a a burn, a chemical burn, because it's acid the right. stomach so it isn't so much the captain crunch i'm worried about what's associated with the captain crunch what the what happens in response to the captain crunch being in the stomach i'm thinking all this acid and I'm, you know i'm sweating bullets in the operating room mm-hmm. as i'm suctioning out his mouth and trying to get him to breathe in that and uh, there but for the grace when i uh, and uh he had captain crunch but he didn't aspirate <laughs> but but that's that's then led into the discussion in the book about uh, why you want NPO nothing per us. Right. Uh you don't want to be eating or drinking anything before a procedure and the reasons why and, and what to do so so he, he taught me a lot and that stuck <laughs> around for a long long time with me I remember him for a long time did and you, for a long time to come Did you ever figure out where
1: he got the Captain Crunch from?
2: He, he said he got it from his uh, after everything was all set and done and he's in recovery room and now we're investigating. He told him he got it off a uh, bedmate's uh tray. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. how many ways can you get screwed? Infinite. Right. Always remember that. I, I had a surgeon in medical school that had, had that on, on a little postcard. How many ways can you get screwed? And then the opposite, he'd flip it over and the opposite was the infinite sign, the uh, two circles <laughs> joined. So, so, and that's all I could think of. So, oh, geez, how many ways? Infinite, right. of course. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, in the book, you, you state that you've worked with a wide variety of patients, everything from the smallest of micro preemies to morbidly obese teenagers. There was one patient you had, however, that wasn't even human. Would you mind sharing that story with us?
2: Uh, talking about Tabibu, it's, uh, it was a, uh, a holiday weekend. And for whatever reason, when I left on the Friday, my name was not on the schedule for the following Tuesday. Uh, and so uh, the weekend went fine. I don't remember being anything specific. It was Memorial Day. And, uh, and I'm strolling into the hospital uh, on the Tuesday morning. It's very early. I'm always there, you know, 630 at the latest. Uh, and uh, as I'm strolling in, uh, the surgical fellow is uh, grabbing me saying, I need help. I need help. And so I check and I have no cases. And, uh, and I follow him. And we lead out of the building, and I'm thinking, okay, now where are we going to? And we lead into a research building. And I think, okay, he's, he's you know, got some cells that he's uh, studying. Uh, and, you know, he needs some help with a research protocol, this and that. Uh, and uh, we're, wa- we're walking up the stairs to, to the research center, and we w- approach a door, uh, which was the uh, research center operating room, and it's open, and I just—I'm stopped in the doorway uh, because there, on the uh, operating room table, is a uh, a gorilla, a baby gorilla, laying on the table, and I'm thinking, "Oh my God, what, what now?" And uh, and so it's between the thought of, you know, here's this most incredible animal that you can never ever get close to, and in uh, and, and the animal. And soon to find out, uh, a young female, l- little girl uh, gorilla, uh, is having some real issues. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you jump out of the, out of that mode for oh my God, I got a, a great ape and a gorilla, I'm taking care of. So, got to get this done. Got to get this right. done. Got to get this done. And uh, and she was in, in uh, deep doo doo. Uh, it turned out she had a Bowel procedure done uh, on the uh, at the beginning of the weekend uh, by a partner of mine, and they had found that she had an infection that had eaten a hole in her intestines, and had closed that up. But those they they listened to the zoo vet, and if you think about a zoo vet, uh, it, it's the family practitioner of medicine. Uh, they care for a wide, wide, wide variety of things, uh, except in their case. A wide variety of different uh, animal species, uh, in, in addition to all the issues that go on, and so uh, instead of thinking about this one particular animal, they were thinking of, uh, about the wide variety and say "Okay, yes, you're right. This animal should go back to the zoo," and and not understanding that this animal couldn't eat or drink, and now it's a couple days later, and this animal's in deep shock from not being able to have anything to eat or drink and no IV because, uh, she's being a little rambunctious and now she's nearing the end of life. Uh, so, so it was, uh, it was a shocking time, but again, you have to kick into caring first. Right. And then all the compassion and everything after, uh, so, so it dropped right into my let's care for this, uh, animal my patient, and let's make sure that this animal is as stable as can be, and starting an IV, developing an airway, uh, and getting her as stable as can be, controlling everything as possible, and meaning breathing for her, uh, watching her heart rate, giving her medications to support her heart rate, giving her medications and fluids uh, to, to improve her status. And it was a, uh, it was a hairy few days. Uh, in, in the meantime, uh, as we're caring for her, the zoo vet comes up to us a day or so later and says, you know, it's time to call it,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and the, the fellow and I, it was absolutely in unison. I remember it so vividly uh, that we just spoke like, like we were one voice, but they were coming out of two different people and saying, you know, sorry, you had your chance now she's ours we'll get her back to you when we feel she's stable, but you're out of the decision loop. And with that, the, the zoo vet actually kind of melted and understood that that uh, you know care was no longer her issue and cost. We would worry about that later, uh, but right now we're only issued about the uh, health of, of the uh, uh, great ape and uh, Tabibu. And so we, we took, uh, as best of care possible and it took about four days three to four days and to woke up so we we did something right and corrected everything we could and uh and when she woke up she was full of uh, vigor at this point uh but we kept her in the uh, uh research center for an extra day or two just to make mm-hmm. sure she was doing fine uh and we moved her off the uh operating table pulled out the endotracheal tube that was doing the breathing for her and then took off the uh, IVs that that she had and uh, set her into a room that had some uh, uh, nice uh, uh, covers but not a whole lot else so that she couldn't get into any trouble and fed her and she started to feed more importantly she started to drink right. and uh, and we we sent her back to the zoo. What's most important about this, or most interesting about this, is that uh, you know a month or two later, the zoo had a party for all the people that were involved in, in Tabibu's care, and uh, and uh, so my whole family went down to the zoo, and they, you know they were all excited, this and that, uh, but Tabibu was in her her uh, great ape uh, habitat, and uh, and everything was happening out outside, and they had the uh, polar bear keepers. Uh, and they were feeding the polar bears. and it was a wonderful time for everybody. And I just grabbed one of the zookeepers, and I said, "I gotta go see Tabibu." And so we slipped into the back of the building, and uh, Tabibu was uh, in her uh, cage in 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 her uh, setting. Uh, but it was just we were just a couple feet away through a, uh, a window, and I was watching Tabibu eat. and uh, and it was just a very special moment for me. Uh, and that was the last time I got to see Tabibu because she actually then was uh, uh, sent off to another zoo in some animal uh, uh, exchange and she wound up in Columbus and I knew she was in Columbus, but, uh, you know, kind of uh, time goes by. And, right. and after I wrote the chapter for the book, uh, I, I uh, looked her up again and lo and behold, uh, to uh, not only went to this other zoo, but she thrives at the other zoo, and uh, I thought she was sterile. I thought she could not get pregnant. I thought the procedure had taken it away from her. Lo and behold, Tabibu had a uh, a little baby, a little little great ape, a uh, little boy, and they named the boy jj and i thought oh this is so magnificent you know not only does she have a little boy she's alive she's thriving but they named the boy after me of course they didn't understand that they, they have no idea who i am <laughs> but there's there's a there's a little jj uh <laughs> great ape in the uh, columbus zoo who's the offspring of tabibu and uh and and i'm proud to say that uh, at least in part it's uh, due to the care that i gave
1: that's, that's such an amazing story. I'm going to have to definitely look up look up photos of her online and her, uh, her little baby.
2: Yes. Yeah, I would recommend that highly. Uh,
1: in the book, it, it is very clear that you are a confident perfectionist and one that is very self-aware and hard on yourself uh, when you make what you have perceived to be an error. There was one time, though, where you felt that you had made a major error with a patient but the patient's mother credits you with saving her daughter's life. Can you please share that story with us?
2: Yeah, yes. Yeah, uh, you know, this, this, I had a phone call. Uh, well, I don't remember if if I was on call that night or if the person at the front desk just uh, uh, recognized I was around and, and shuffled the call off to me or whatever. But I got a call about a child who, uh, who had a respiratory tract infection or thought to have a respiratory tract infection and, uh, and what should be done. Uh, and so my policy has always been that, that, uh, if you can optimize the patient before you give them an anesthetic, you have the best chances of having an outcome, the least amount of complications as a result of that. And so, uh, I looked up the child and I said, okay, this is what the story is. Uh, Let's hold for two weeks, uh, and, uh, and if they're not better in two weeks, bring them in. I'll evaluate. I reserve the right to, to uh, cancel the case uh, if I think it's in the best. Uh, however, bring the patient in and let me see them directly. And the two weeks go by, and I, I, I dropped that patient. I mean, the patient just went out of my uh, mind as I was caring for other patients. And so the patient shows up. And, and I listen, and I'm not connecting the original phone call to this, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm told the patient may have had a cold in this net and, and, uh, and I take a look at the patient, but I let my resident do the, uh, uh physical exam. And so I am just looking at the patient and say, okay, you know, it's time to get this done. And, uh, uh the, the patient was having a combination of procedures done, uh, and, uh, and while we're doing the procedures, the oxygen level keeps dropping on the patient, and I'm not initially connecting it to the phone call uh, and everything that's going on, and and I'm thinking, oh geez, oh geez, what what did we get into here? And uh, and so uh, I stabilize the patient as best as possible, and then uh, I uh, uh, order an X-ray and take the patient to the uh, recovery area, and I meet the mother, and I say, here's the story. And the mother just uh, almost burst into tears as she's talking to me, and it's finally somebody's listening. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a conundrum. Because if I would have listened to begin with, and I mean listening to the patient's lungs myself, the case probably would have been canceled, would have been sent back to the pediatrician who has been dealing with this and just uh, you know putting off the mother, putting off the mother. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, here it was, that I'm in this uh, truly critical situation uh, with a blunder of my own that, that uh, I probably would not have done the case. And yet now the patient's here and now the responsibility is mine. And now I'm uh, going to do whatever I can to make the best out of this. And so the anesthetic went okay, but the oxygen levels are, are jumping all over the place, not to critical levels, but, but they're jumping over and it's wrong. And so get the chest x-ray and... When I looked at the chest x-ray, my my heart just sank uh, because it wasn't a pneumonia. Uh, She had a, uh, a, a, I think it was a leukemia, although I thought at the time it was a lymphoma, and wound up in the intensive care unit after that as a result. As a result of that, though, jumped into immediate high-risk, high-intensity care Mm-hmm. and received all the medications necessary to survive. And now we're talking a year, year and a half later when I'm uh, in a, a, an area talking to a uh, another colleague uh, and patients and parents and, and family and that are passing by. And this uh, one woman is just staring at me a little bit and finally comes up and, and says to her daughter, this is the man who saved a life and it, it, you know, it's just like, Oh my God, all this is raining down on me and save the life is a good thing. Although, you know, I wish I would have done it in a little bit more politically correct way right. that, that didn't uh, risk an anesthetic and a surgery for me to diagnose the fact that there's a major issue. Uh, but, but, uh, yeah, the leukemia was, was, uh, taken care of and cured. Uh, and you know how, how satisfied can you feel? How much happier can you feel? And yet, you still have that guilt mm-hmm. of of knowing that, that the patient should have never gone to the operating room to begin with. So, so you know, it, it's it's one of those back and forth, right? And right. Uh, and I don't know, I'll never be able to satisfy myself on it. Uh, but she's alive, and that's what counts,
1: right? Exactly, exactly. Now, you're a professor at a teaching hospital. Uh, One of the themes you kind of talk about in the book is, you know, those calls that you get from people who say, I want you to perform the anesthesia on my son's surgery or my daughter's surgery instead of the resident. What do you say to that?
2: that, That's referring back to a case that that, uh, uh, a mother calls me up and it's during the day and it's during cases in the hallway I answer. And we're going on about this, and it turns out uh, she was a uh, an anesthetist at a, uh, another hospital, and she had a child who needed a procedure, but the procedure was specific enough that our institution offered it. None of the other institutions in the area offered it, and, uh, and I said, okay, I, I, w- I would love to. And she ends the discussion saying, or tries to end the discussion saying, you know, I, I only want you to touch my child, and, uh, you know, I had to stop it right there mm-hmm. uh, and say, that, that you know, it's a process. In the process, I'd like to think that I'm the most important person in the process, and perhaps I am, but it's a process that has multiple people, all of which are necessities to the process. Right. And that once you start trying to, to uh, break the process, is when you start getting into potential errors. And I, I uh, insisted that, you know, allow me to provide the care to the best of my ability. Don't ask me to do anything special. Don't ask me to do anything outside of the usual. Let me do it. I will deliver your child the best care possible, deliver your child in the best condition possible back to you, but let me do it my way. And, uh, and it, it, interestingly enough, after she thought about it for a while, she said, okay. And she, it was obvious she wasn't happy the day that I took care of her child. Uh, But it was obvious that she was happy afterwards because a number of months later, I get a return phone call from her asking her if I care for her son. So I care for both her daughter and her son. Uh, And I obviously made an impression upon her. And, you know, you can't break a system. You know, you can try and get the best people that you think are available for that system. But don't change the system. Don't break the system. Mm-hmm. Keep it the way it is and let people do their best to the best of their ability. And that was a big issue there. And I still, I mean, that that's the way life is. You know, it, I love to take care of all patients, uh, but it's got to be done in the way that I feel is, is the most appropriate without altering the system.
1: Right, right. Well, your book is full of, of fascinating uh, personal stories like that and others. Um, I have taken up a lot of your time today, Dr. J. Uh, My final question for you is, what are you working on
2: now? Oh, you know, I actually have three books in the process right now. Uh, And the first is the obvious one, uh, that this book is is receiving enough attention uh, that that maybe it needs a little bit more uh, consideration. Uh, And and so a a couple of the cases that were dropped out of the first book by the agent and by the uh, publisher uh, you know, may be important enough to discuss in a second book, in addition to discussing a little bit more about the three minutes and, and a few other aspects of, of uh, health care and anesthesia care uh, as they pertain to, to what's happening today. So, uh, and, and uh, tentatively, I'm calling it still counting. Uh, and uh, so, so that's in the process. Uh, the, uh, unfortunately, if, if you read Counting Backwards, uh, there's a dedication in there, and that was to my wife. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> she passed away from a uh, brain aneurysm. And so when I, when I started writing, it was to give me something to do with her while also getting great relief since I wasn't able to get relief through my own profession. Uh, and the one way that I did get it was through writing. And so I went to uh, receive my master's degree, Uh, Writing about my wife, and they're the ones who told me, put it down, you can't write through tears, and they were absolutely right, and and, uh, led me on to counting backwards, which came out a whole lot easier for me to do, and I appreciate everybody's comments about about the quality of the writing. So uh, so writing about my wife is the uh, next thing, and then the last thing I was doing with my wife before she passed away uh, was I was writing a novel and uh, my wife was deeply uh, into the novel, uh, reviewing the novel, and so, so that, that's the third one, and that's probably gonna be the first one that's gonna come up. Hopefully, uh, a publisher will agree that it's a quality work and publish it. So the novel's called Gem, uh, and it's about a, uh, a caregiver and pain relief and a, and a girl with a uh, cancer. Uh, the other one, my wife, with the aneurysm and all the impacts that it had on my life. And then a follow up to uh, counting backwards, tentatively to still counting. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, Doctor J, I've gotten to enough, asked. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, I've, I've gotten to be a big fan of your work. And when you're finished with any of those books, you'll have to let me know. I can't wait to read them, and I, I hope you'll come back on the show to talk about those as well.
2: I'm truly appreciative of, uh, of your thoughts and uh, of your desire to continue to read work by me and I would be most happy to come back to your show.
1: Fantastic, fantastic. I want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it, and it was a pleasure to talk to you. Take care.
2: Thank you for inviting me.